Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. Today, we're happy to welcome you to Jeroen van Dornik, and among friends, simply JD. JD is a managing partner of Rabo Frontier Ventures, a 200 million euro fund of fund and co-investment fund with Rabo Bank as the sole LP. With Rabo, JD leverages his unique access to tier one VCs like Balderton, North Zone, HV Capital, Speed Invest, Seedcamp, and ability to identify and move quick on co-investment opportunities in breakaway companies in their portfolios. In this episode, we dive deep with JD on his thinking on picking and assessing the best funds and the co-investment opportunities, as well as his journey of building a 200 million euro fund with a hybrid strategy of fund of funds and direct investing. And don't forget, if you would like to suggest topics or guests for future episodes, join our community and help make the best pod for everything European VC. And if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors. Do you get cold inbound deal flow that you'd wish you could help but can't invest in? You might consider directing them to the European VC's newly launched self-paced fundraise acceleration program and community. It's tailor-made for founders about to raise their pre-seed or seed round and gives them a clear 10-step process to go from wanting to raise to ready to raise. It's community-centered, giving them access to mentors and fellow founders to spar with around their process, plans, and pains. Stop sending founders on their way with an empty referral to another VC firm or angel group. Send them to a community and resource that will actually help them go from minus cold outreaches to a deliberate fundraising plan that will actually work. Send them to the europeanvc.com forward slash raise. Hi, Jeroen, and hopefully I got the pronunciation slightly right. <laughs> Welcome to the show, and thank you for taking the time to joining us here at EOVC. How's everything? Thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, happy to be here. And, and you got that pronunciation, yeah, like 80% right, so that's good. <laughs> So to avoid that feeling of not being up to par, I'll start calling you JD. (laughs) So uh, JD, we always start more on the personal side. So I'd like to start off by asking you, share with our audience, what's your background and how the hell did you end up in venture? Yeah, sure. I started out in uh, consulting, as I think many people do, and then founded a company in motorsports. We provided training actually for amateurs and later on also for professionals. And did that for a while. After exiting that company, I started working for um, portfolio companies of local VCs. And that's basically almost like 10 years ago, but that's basically the inroad into venture. From there on, I started working with you know various early and growth stage funds. And yeah, basically here we are at the moment. Last time we spoke, you shared with us your kind of personal view on venture. That is three things, network, access, and speed. A lot of our uh, listeners are emerging managers, so they will be very interested in hearing your thesis about uh, what is venture and what is needed. Yeah, you're right. So I think if you look at venture, the distributions are quite skewed, right? So there's a small group of firms that are generating majority, basically, of the returns in the whole assets class. And I think in venture, network and access is maybe the same, but it's about having access to those most relevant slash most competitive deals. And then what you need basically to execute on those deals, because they, especially in this market nowadays, it's they, they move very quick, right? So you have to be able to execute. And 
as you know, I'm doing direct investments and also indirect. So I'm also an LP in a couple of funds. And I know that many LPs ask for these co-investment rights and they see this as an interesting opportunity, which I think is rightfully so. But the timelines usually do not match, right? So most of the LPs need a couple of weeks. That's also, I think, because of the distance to the, you know, but let's say, let's say the underlying asset, you know, they're not coming from a direct investment side. So for them, the asset is new. And so if you know that asset and you can execute, let's say in a week time, then yeah, that's an interesting opportunity. And, and yeah, you basically need that speed to exit those deals. You said there that network and you're investing as an LP into the funds to get that access. And you also said that the best performing funds are the ones driving all the returns in the asset class. I'm curious in your perspective, how do you find these best performing funds? Because some people say go for the brand names. Other people say ah, brand names. Yeah, some of them are good, but you definitely also find others who kind of carry a legacy brand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, some may, but yeah. So basically your question is of how do you find the good managers, right? So how do you find the right manager? Maybe then we're already diving into it a little bit deeper, but consistency is really uh, critical, right? So if you look at the best managers, so to speak, first of all, they have everything lined up basically to execute their strategy. Let's say your initial strategy can be maybe a little bit uncommon, but that doesn't really matter as long as your organization operations and the whole team is aligned to basically execute on that strategy. And that really is the key thing here, right? Versus having a group of people sometimes that is investing and they can also be successful, but they tend to be successful with more outliers in their portfolio and haven't found that typical consistency that you can build in the firm, basically, right? So that's what I look for. So basically, is everything aligned? Is also the partnership aligned itself? So, you know, also within the partnership, is that aligned? And then have you been able to showcase, do you have the track record basically to also actually execute that strategy? Because That's also the, you know, from going from the theory to reality is also a big step because you see a lot of funds, for example, that target have, a, of course, everybody has a specific stake. You know, the initial stake should be like, I don't know, 10, 15%, whatever, in a certain stage. In reality, that doesn't happen. There you see that maybe it's a good strategy, but apparently the founders or the companies are not on the same page as you are because your band name may not be good enough or your value add or whatever because you don't basically get the size that you're looking for. And especially nowadays, of course, it's super competitive. So I'm actually very curious on that point because SNLP, all you have in the beginning is the investment strategy and then you can tie them down in the LPA to execute on that strategy saying now, but you can't go outside of the bounds. But then as things progress, you end up, kind of having to let them adapt to the reality because that's how things are. But how do you view that both in terms of how much do you want to tie them on the strategy legally and how much is it something that you uh, actually pursue after the investment that they execute on what they had told you in the initial pitch meeting? <laughs> okay, so your question is basically, do you hold them accountable for the initial strategy, right? Yeah, exactly. In a way you would, but I think as an LP, you should become a life cycle partner. You should be a life cycle partner of these funds, right? And not go in one fund and then go out. And I think the funds that have this alignment basically on the strategy, those are the ones that typically also tend to get it. I don't often see that everything is aligned and then they don't get it. So basically, they're not capable of executing. I don't actually see that very often because what I do see more often is that the initial setup was maybe not the best setup for that strategy. And then it goes, you know, but it's not the initial strategy, but it's just the, the operation that doesn't work. And the funds that we work with, they typically deliver on their 
initial strategy. And maybe uh, touch a bit, I don't know to what extent you are at liberty to uh, disclose who you're working with, but maybe categorize them a bit at least, describe the characteristics. Yeah, sure. There's a couple of fun. We have them on our website as well. So, you know, we have, for example, Speed Invest or Seedcamp or Northzone, Bulletin. I think I can disclose those because they're on the side. But <laughs> So typically, you know, early stage funds here in Europe, it's like 80% of what we do and maybe a little bit outside of Europe. But what you see also there, which I find quite interesting is that we do direct investments. You know, we try to get those competitive co-investments. And of course, that's also one of the reasons why we have the LP position. So we had, as I always say, sort of front and back end position in venture. So we see both happening. We're predominantly active in Europe, but we also have a direct portfolio across US and Asia. And it's really interesting to see where these markets also, they differ quite a lot from geo to geo, right? So if you look at the value chain in US, it's quite sophisticated, also on the LP side of things. In Europe, not so much. So I think I would say less, right? So it's a different composition as well. And as I said, there's room probably for more lifecycle LPs for GPs, right? So that they stick and also always allocate to the asset class. And then in Asia, you have the macro dynamics are, of course, very interesting, right? Everything is growing more or less at a very high pace. But the venture value chain is still more or less in development if you compare it to US. And if you work with different funds in Europe, you also see this effect basically on the back end working with funds outside of Europe. But US is like ninth generation. What, what is it? Maybe eight or seventh generation of VCs. Yeah, yeah. And maybe here, what is it? Mainland, we have like second or third. I don't know. So that's a big difference. But anyways, we stick to Europe because... Again, you know, like for 80%, because, yeah, I think there's a large opportunity base. The opportunity is bigger in that sense. How come the uh, portfolio outside of Europe is direct investments for you? I would have expected the opposite. We're a global investor, so we invest globally. As you know, we invest in fintech and in the ag tech, so in the agricultural space and specifically in ag tech. These hubs tend to differ in terms of geo. There's more going on in California, for example, than there is in uh, south of Spain or something like that. So that's the reason. And we do have funds that are active and invest out of US, but that's the reason. I'm curious to put you in the spot <laughs> and ask, you've named some quite big brand VCs. What are your views on emerging managers? Because arguably some would say, nah, these micro VCs, these emerging managers, they have real access in these under or overlooked areas what are your thoughts what are you thinking around that it's not part of my current strategy right so i'm not investing and not for this setup emerging managers is not what i'm focusing on but it's the same discussion probably as sole gp right so i think emerging managers it's always difficult for them to get it off the ground but if you share my view that it's about access and speed, right? So that's one thing I would say, then why not, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so if you're embedded, let's use that word, but if you're sort of embedded in another great word is ecosystem, if you're in it and in the value chain, then I personally don't see why you wouldn't be successful. I think that's also, you know, if you look at their deal flow coverage, their percentage, basically, that's also what we're looking at. I think it's not a different bet from maybe it's a little bit of a different risk reward from a big brand name that's doing it for 20 years or longer already. But it's a different approach that I have. I just look at, yeah. Yeah. you know, do we have the access and the speed? Yeah. And to your point of understanding, you know, if they've cracked the code to do it in a systematic way, that's the big challenge with emerging managers, right? Yeah. And also, I think the dynamics, again, in Europe, if you look like 10 years ago in venture, I think the market nowadays, it's like it's institutionalizing a bit. I think there's still going to be major changes, right? You probably have the bigger firms, multi-stage covering large parts of Europe. And I think you will have hyper-specialized, what we are talking about, funds or gym or managers that have like the super access, right? They know all the founders in their space and da, da, da. They would like to work together. I think that's 
going forward, that's probably going to happen in Europe as well. I think that that's going to change a bit. So there is space for these emerging managers. I want to shift a bit topics to talk about the strategy of doing both direct investments, but acting as an LP. And I know that when you started out, you're just kind of testing it out with a smaller sized fund. And now things have changed, things have evolved. I'd love to hear you a bit talk about that thesis that you had in the beginning and you tested and how did you feel that it was getting proven and that process of increasing because that's really cool i had this thesis that if this is true right so if, if the distributions are like the way they are in venture then there has to be a way to be part of the value chain is probably better than be outside of it and that's the reason why i i you know started with this sort of relationship ticket sized investments into funds and Of course, if you work with funds, you get a lot of info on what they're working on. I manage it like I come from a direct investment background. So I also manage the LP positions basically as a direct investment. So we tend to speak to the GPs quite a lot. And I think we have a pretty good understanding of the underlying assets. We also ourselves understand if there's a co-investment opportunity, who the founder is, what the company is doing. And the benefit, of course, is that usually we also see it coming. Right, because we can track the portfolios quite well from our managers. But that doesn't mean that you always have access, of course, but it does mean that you can see it coming. So we're, you sort of have a prepared mind. So if you want to execute on an investment, then that's what we can do. And you're right, we basically started out small, right? So I had this thesis and then you have to test this and see if it works. <laughs> and with the first couple of funds, you don't know, of course. But yeah, so for me, the goal was also, you know, have access to these funds and then make sure that we get the, the call or the email for the most interesting competitive deals, co-investments opportunity. What should a good fund of fund, or not a good fund of fund manager, but a good VC fund manager do to make it most <laughs> lucrative or most interesting for you as an LP to co-invest? What are best practices there? I think best practices, well, I think this is pretty standard in the market, but I think that sometimes it's surprising that there is an opportunity and there's limited time. And that's probably not the best practice, but usually that's the case because also for the managers, it's the same, right? So they suddenly have access, the founders are doing the round, something is changing, or maybe the round is progressing faster than they expected. Of course, best practice would be if you can update your LPs on like six months prior to that. <laughs> not, it's not a reality. But I do see that occasionally maybe the connection to the LPs could be a little bit stronger on this end, right? So keep them informed. And basically just the execution and stuff, I'd say it's pretty standard, right? Some LPs have the appetite to take on these co-investments. Others don't as part of their strategy. And that's, yeah, pretty straightforward. What I find particularly interesting to discuss is, you know, you called it relationship tickets. And the way I see it, it's very much relational what you're doing, you know, and getting an allocation in these funds, investing and then co-investing with them. And I'm really curious curious to kind of go back in time and understand how you started doing this because getting an allocation in these big brands VCs isn't easy <laughs> right because they want more than just the capital typically yes. the bigger the yeah. brand the worse <laughs> so to speak yeah. uh, could you put some words in how did you break into that how do you create these relationships the bigger the brand the, the worse the reporting is uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's like the same with fundraising or, or or pitching for a founder i'd say it took time right so it takes a lot of time to build this funnel find the right managers and look at our own portfolio composition and also overlap right so in the portfolio of course course there's managers that do the same deals you know is it that sort of thing is that going to hurt us or, or actually it doesn't matter i think for the gps for them it's as you said right they look for value add so what's your story and some of these lps i think there are a couple of them are like a life cycle partner right so they have clear value they just you know re-up on every opportunity and that's great i think as a manager because 
you know, you're also looking at your LP base. You don't want to have like a very strange composition. So you work on it, of course, and some of them really are really helpful for that, right? Because yeah, the institutional ones, they can help getting to certain size and stuff. But for us, it's been from day one, it's been clear that, okay, we're also going to do direct investments. So what we can bring is, you know, the opportunity to execute quite quickly on those direct investments. And the other is that as a team uh, and myself, I think, as I said, we understand the direct side of things. So also, you know, setting up and pulling opportunity vehicles and doubling down on other interesting opportunities in the portfolios where we have been really proactive, right? So we've been really proactively approaching the GPs and say, hey, listen up, we have an appetite for this and this, and why don't we work on it? And maybe we can we can set something up and then execute it. And that's also, of course, quite a clear because, you know, it can be, of course, most of the GPs have their own opportunity vehicles and so forth, but it can be a quite time-consuming thing for the manager itself. So it's something that the, if we approach them proactively, it's a clear value add to them. Last but not least, I'd say it's that, uh, of course, every, every, every GP also has his own story on what their value add is, right? So, so, so some say we're hands-off, some say we're hands-on, or it's always interesting. Also there, you see different narratives or stories that happen, you know, how, how, specifically in the experience of founders, I'd say that can be different from what the VCs think that they bring to the table. But I think we basically focus on, as I just said, that's what we bring to the table. Of course, it's the network. It's easy for us, you know, to go into the network and try to help, but we focus on the aspect, as I said, of opportunity vehicles, other opportunities. And also on the direct side of things, we focus on fundraising, as I say, cap table strategies and that kind of stuff. And we tend to, that's like 80% of the value that we bring and not so much, for example, product development or something like that. I think others are probably better at it. And for us, it's easier. And I think we're well positioned to help with who would be a good GP, VC to join the next round, et cetera. And what are they doing and who's raising what? So, so that's the other, for the direct side of thing, that's the other clear, I'd say, value add to pooling. And I think it's also good to focus, right? So we don't overpromise. When we talk to VCs, we always talk about deal sourcing as part of it. On the fund of fund side, it's a bit different. Could you let us in on how you do that? What's the process inside Rabo and so on? I don't know if it's that different. It may be different in a sense that it maybe the targets are easier to find at least, right? Yeah. Because it's not that difficult to find a list online or whatever. But of course, getting in, and, and it's difficult, right? And also managing your ticket size and how relevant you are for them to join. And again, the life cycle for them, they're quite critical on their composition. As it's the same for funds and their raising, right? So it's a large part is networking. And we know, of course, the funds that we're looking for. Occasionally, there's um, an opportunity or maybe for a secondary or something like that, but also occasionally opportunity where may, a partner may start something for its own. And again, you know, is that is that is that an emerging manager or, or a sort of spin slash carve out? For us, it's just important to have the info on what's going on and be there. And then for our process, it's, it's I'd say it's fairly, you know, we have a fairly standard. We discuss, of course, all the funds, but they're so clear we want to get in, right? So we know them. Some funds we're trying to get access, some funds we're building a relationship. And that's what we're after. Our internal process is usually it's a bit more efficient than other LPs. And that probably has to do with the fact that we also do direct investments. And, you know, we're used to doing quite a lot of deals. So we don't run into any timeline issues or whatever. So I think that's actually a benefit of our setup. 
versus your you know typical institutional LP may may need a little bit longer. It doesn't differ that much, but we have a very in that sense efficient process. I of course asked because as David said before, we have many emerging managers on here as audience, and they're of course looking to build out their LP base to founders. It's completely clear how they should run, or at least there's a lot of material out there how they should run their fundraise process. But for the emerging GPs, it might be more intransparent to figure out exactly when should I reach out to Rabo and build the connection to JD versus the other situation where it's like, nah, if JD doesn't reach out to you, then don't waste your time. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, as I said, it's so it's it's hard for emerging managers, but yeah, it's it's we don't have the right setup, right? If you look at the funds that we work with, of course, it's a difficult. But what I can say is that I think any emerging manager that has the access to competitive deals, right? So coming out of the network, basically, they tend to have uh, have been a founder or maybe have friends who've been a founder. And I always say you just it's always just best to start at the beginning, right? So have a couple of friends and family join, then go through a family office and then approach institutionals. And that's probably the, how you say, more efficient fastest way to get to where you want to be and the other is which is not it's not excluded or it's, it's also entirely feasible it's just do the whole two-year what is it nowadays fundraise maybe it's a lot shorter nowadays but you see what i mean right so you just you go through the whole loop and then you go to all the lp events build network get a lot of referrals from other funds so that should look at your strategy and da 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 i think that that's also the way to get there but the shortest most easy one but that's also a bit of my personal view. I think it's just easy to start small and build it from there. Let's go to the question that, you know, we've been circling about what gets you super excited when you see a fund? What puts them on that list of funds that you are trying to get into? <laughs> That's a good one. I think the... Um... Uh, you're Dutch, so sorry for uh, implying that you all can get super excited. <laughs> <laughs> it does get me excited on what we already touched upon, right? Is that the clarity on how you're going to execute your strategy. And you can really, you have to make big decisions sometimes. For example, even this, you know, basic stuff, maybe even as the size of your partnership, right? Do you have like a couple of partners and then you have to do the let's say the download every Monday in the partner meeting, or is it just a super small team that makes a decision on the spot, which in early stage, for example, today could be really a way to go, right? But but get me excited if, the, if you know that the GP knows basically what needs to be done operationally to execute that strategy and doesn't deviate from that, not a single bit. And there are funds that do that. And that's, I think it's it shows that you really understand, you know, what that you're basically there to access those founders and deliver to them and the rest may be uh, less of importance it's also the discipline right so what you see is that if your fund size if you grow then you need to be disciplined in terms of of your own fund side right maybe now you can have a little bit of increase for your next fund or the fund thereafter the discipline helps it shows that you know what you're doing and that you can execute the same strategy maybe a little bit offsetting the valuations nowadays as i said but you also see that funds, you know, sometimes the fund size doubles or triples or whatever. Maybe that's a little bit of a funky example, but then it's different, right? So then you are shifting from your core strategy and that actually should mean that throughout your organization, everything changes. Have you been close enough to the funds to say these are the processes inside the GP that work best? And I've seen things always go awry when they do X, Y, or Z. 
Yes, decision making. So decision making on, let's say, the front end of things, not so much the back end, right? So it's the front end. So are you close enough to the founder? How did you see the round coming? Do you get your allocation? Those sort of things, right? And is the founder, let's say, speaking to you guys or to me, and can we make a decision on the spot? In the majority of things, I, I do think so that's that's something that you, if you get that right, then uh, you have start of a good setup. It's not so much back end, right? So what I mean by back end is all the operational stuff and everything to get the deal done eventually. I'm curious, what do you see as the characteristics of the best VCs out there? And what do you see as the worst mistakes? <laughs> <laughs> the worst mistakes, yeah. And name them, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> the best VCs. Yeah, I mean, it's not rocket science, right? It just comes down to, do you understand the space? Do you understand the industry? Do you really have a sense of, you know, are you part of it, basically? So are you part of that industry? Or are you an outsider trying to get in? It's basic, but I do think that that's one of the key things. Yeah, again, I mean, it's just, are you capable of executing that strategy? Those things remain for me then the most important ones. Everybody usually knows, you know, what, what you need to do and da-da-da to get to a very good performance. You need to be able to operationalize that basically as well. Maybe to add on that, maybe the really good ones are also capable of institutionalizing that. That's beyond yourself basically, right? So some of them are, are better at it than others, which I think is normalized. Some are more entrepreneurial, maybe less good at trying to build the sort of firm and others are better at also building that firm to make sure that there's consistency. And then on the worst part, I think, well, I think it's the obvious thing, right? So being too overly opportunistic, right? So investing in opportunities. What you see happening, what I've seen in the past at least, is that some funds start with a very strong thesis. And then after the first year, I think you already mentioned that, but after the first year, they see another interesting opportunity. And then another, <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and, and then it becomes, you don't have that consistency, right? So it can still, as I said, it can still be like an outlier fund. So that, I think that is when you do like manager selection, I think that's the key thing here, right? You have to see through that basically. So did they know what they were doing or is this part of their core or is this just pure luck? And maybe they can repeat that. So it could also be like, see what I mean? That, that it doesn't really matter what sort of thesis they have. They just tend to be the right team to have access to every relevant deal. That's their USB and the thesis is less important. And as an LP in that situation, how do you typically tackle it? Well, what do you mean? If we're part of that situation? Uh, you don't know, uh, you know, once they start deviating, doing tickets outside of the thesis, and you don't know yeah. if that is going to be an outlier or not. <laughs> To the extreme, of course, there, then you have issues, right? But I think nowadays with the funds, again, that we work with at the moment, it's quite professional, I have to say. So it has its boundaries, of course, but it's, it's, I don't see it a lot. But maybe in other geos, it's happening. And again, it can be a good thing, but then your thesis should be, you know, we just have access to every random deal. <laughs> That's, the That's a different uh, if they can convince you that they consistently <laughs> do that, that's fine. <laughs> exactly. And you have groups of investors which are sort of loosely connected into a firm that are doing so, right? So they yeah. do like small cap PE and then occasionally the VC yeah. deal and they do yeah. tend to cherry pick the right deals. They are there, but are you going to allocate institutional capital to those firms? I don't know, right? It could be, yeah. but I don't think for us it's not the right setup. Nah, that's really, really interesting last segment. 
I think a lot of interesting nuggets there for emerging managers listening in and also putting it into perspective that, you know, what you are doing is building a portfolio of investments into funds. And so you need that consistency because that also informs yourself. Really cool. JD, we uh, end our episodes with what we call a quick fire round. A quick fire round is when we ask a couple of quick answer questions, 30 to 60 seconds each. Are you ready? Sure. Okay. Within AgTech, which is a vertical that we don't talk a lot about, what areas excite you the most that most people wouldn't really feel that excited about? I'd like to say fintech, but within that, <laughs> most people are excited about it. So I think that's not a good answer, but it is true. And maybe the stage. So I think it's relatively speaking still early, early days and that offers opportunity. And uh, since you joined forces with Rabo, what is the most counterintuitive thing that you've learned? Doubling down on successes is not as easy as it seems as a, as a sort of bystander maybe, right? For some deals and funds and that and that. And from a distance, you'd say, well, yeah, double down for sure. But apparently it's not that easy. Third and final question, what can we expect in the future from JD? Well, what you can expect from me is that I'm going to continue with this sort of hybrid strategy because I do think, you know, it's a great strategy. It's working for us. And it's also, I think, again, in Europe where the opportunity is, right? So it's a large opportunity. I think in the coming five to 10 years, the landscape is going to change. And there's room for this strategy in Europe. So, yeah, that's what you'll see of me probably. Awesome, JD. Thanks a million for joining us. It was super fun and we can't wait to keeping in touch with you and see where everything goes in this wonderful world of Rabo and JD. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Thanks for the invite and uh, you guys are doing a great job. So thanks. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. And don't forget, if you would like to suggest topics or guests for future episodes, join our community and help make the best pod for everything European VC. And if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors.